Greetings and welcome to another installment of Capital Report, a limited edition spinoff of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry, SoundCloud, and at www.vhha.com. You can also hear episodes of the podcast each Saturday at 11 a.m. on WJFN 100.5 FM in the Richmond area. Please listen and give us a five-star review. You can also send questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today, we're pleased to be joined by two members of the VHHA advocacy team, Dave Nutter and Mary Margaret Whipple. Prior to joining VHHA, Dave and Mary Margaret both served in the Virginia General Assembly in different chambers and on opposite sides of the aisle. Dave represented a Blacksburg area district as a Republican in the House of Delegates for a decade, and Mary Margaret represented Arlington County as a Democrat in the Virginia Senate for more than 15 years. She also has the distinction of being the first woman to hold a leadership position in the Senate. During our conversation, we'll discuss their legislative experience, their current work on health care policy, and more. But first, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julian. It's good to be with you. And we appreciate both of you for squeezing a few moments in to be with us today during uh, the busy season of legislating at the Virginia General Assembly. And one of the things that strikes me about the Virginia legislature is that it's a place steeped in tradition as the oldest continuous legislative body in the Western Hemisphere. Capitol Square is a reminder of the Commonwealth status as the proverbial mother of presidents and of its centrality in American history. And yet it's also a place of constant churn because time for everyone marches on. You both served in the General Assembly uh, as recently as 2012, and today many of the folks you served with are no longer in office, and there are so many members, particularly in the House, with less than five years of legislative seniority. So let's start there. I wonder, uh, Dave and Mary Margaret, what your personal observations are about that juxtaposition of tradition and turnover in the General Assembly, especially in a partisan environment. Mary Margaret, let's start with your thoughts about the, the change and the turnover you've seen. Virginia certainly is a place of traditions. I think the Senate particularly emphasizes that and, and tries to educate its new members, but it, of course, needs to change with the times, and the people are different. I still have any number of people that I served with, but there are quite a few new members of the Senate, and certainly in the House, I'll let Dave speak to that, but that has really seen a lot of change. This year, the change is really pronounced because the majority changed in both the Senate and the House. So it's made for a very dynamic situation. Dave, what about you? Uh, well, I agree with Mary Margaret. It has changed a lot. You know, a lot of people think that the legislative is very calcified, but it, it changes a lot, even when I was there. But clearly, where we are today, it, it's even much more diverse. And as you mentioned earlier, over 50% of the House has served two years or less. So it's quite a, a significant change. And demographically, it's different now. It's definitely a lot more women and a lot more African Americans. So it's more, it's more urban and more younger. So it's, it's a very different institution, has a very different feel. So it's, it's definitely a very different body today than when I served too. And just quickly to follow up on that, from the perspective of someone who is working day to day with legislators, both those who are returning members of the General Assembly and those are new members, from the perspective of an advocate, how does that alter the approach you take just in terms of working with new folks, getting accustomed to them, but also on educating them about the issues that you're engaged in? Dave, you want to take that one first? Yeah, well, it definitely changes it. You know, you have to help educate people. You know, most people, when they come to the legislature, 
bring their professional experience to the table. It is not a body on either side that has lots of staff that can do all the research work for you. So it really depends on your knowledge level. And so unless you have a healthcare background particularly, most people, they're starting from a baseline of knowledge of how healthcare works, its funding modules, you know, how its payer mix, all these dynamics that are very important to the industry to help bring them up to speed and better understand it. So while this is a challenging time to educate people, it's an opportunity as well to help help them understand the hospitals, the healthcare systems in, in their communities and how they operate. Mary Margaret, any other thoughts on that? Oh, well, absolutely. Basically, the job of an advocate is an education job. That's what you're there for, is to help people understand the issues and know the ramifications of a decision that they might make what the impact would be on, let's say, their local hospital. They probably know their local hospital and like their local hospital, but they may be contemplating taking a position that would have an impact on that hospital that they wouldn't be aware of unless we come to them or the administrator of the hospital comes and tells them what the impact might be. Education is most of what we do. Well, thanks for sharing that perspective. I want to continue our stroll down memory lane for a moment more. You both have a lifetime of professional experience. Mary Margaret in local government and higher education, Dave in higher education, and as a congressional staffer. And that experience is apart from your service in the General Assembly, which we discussed a moment ago. I wonder for both of you, as you look back on your legislative careers, what one accomplishment sticks out to you most and sort of remains with you today above all others? Mary Margaret, let's start with you. Well, that's not an easy question to answer, but I think that the work I did on the Chesapeake Bay with wetlands protection and other water quality bills, I was honored by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation three different times as their legislator of the year was something that I really specialized in and that I felt had a lasting impact. And Dave? Um, well, I was on the health committee, so I've got really involved in health care issues and, you know, was legislator of the year for the Rural Health Association and, and also honored by the Free Clinics Association. So for me, in many ways, this is a continuation of that. And what I'm excited about to see that more people are aware, are more aware of the health disparities around Virginia, both in the urban and rural areas, and people are more aware of that dynamic and how critical that is as we try to move Virginia forward, particularly from an economic development capacity. So uh, that, that's something I'm very proud of. Thanks to you both for sharing those observations with us. Let's shift our focus now back to the 2020 legislative session. We're approaching the halfway point of an already eventful session in which, as Mary Margaret mentioned, new Democratic majorities are in power. And we've had a lot of debates and demonstrations over issues that inflame passions and can spark strong reactions across the political spectrum. But if we set those issues aside, there are so many other important public policy questions confronting the General Assembly. Mary, Margaret, and Dave, I wonder, um, since you're both engaged on healthcare policy issues for VHHA on behalf of member hospitals and health systems, what are the issues that you're spending your time working on this session? Mary, Margaret, let's start with you. Sure. Well, one major issue that we've been working on uh, is behavioral health. And I'm not the specialist on that. Jennifer Wicker is our specialist on that. But it's a very, very important issue and one that doesn't have real easy answers. So that's been a particularly important issue that we need to educate legislators about, show them what some of the alternatives are so that they don't leap to a conclusion that might not work for hospitals, for the people who are involved, and most importantly, 
for the people who have these behavioral health problems that need to be addressed. The Medicaid expansion, of which we're all very proud of, that nearly 400,000 new people have health coverage through Medicaid expansion, but it has meant then people who, in fact, do have coverage and can seek help for issues that they have not been able to do in the past. So that's a very important issue that we've been working on. And Dave? Well, as as Mary Margaret said, clearly uh, behavioral health is a critical issue on both sides. Balanced billing is one that's really moving to the forefront. There is a a bill put in kind of reflecting the issues of the insurance industry, but it's grown much wider. So it would basically set a price cap at all a broad number of services, not just emergency services, that would frankly be very debilitating to our rural hospitals. And so it's been, you know, it's been really exciting to work on that. Uh, as Mary Margaret said, in addition to the Medicaid expansion, the issues surrounding that because of the fact that Right now, you know, that happened because the hospital stepped up to provide, do the uh, payer assessment to hold the general fund harmless so that the hospitals contribute to a fund to cover the 10% share of the state share of the cost of Medicaid expansion. And you know when you do that, that, that you create a fund out there that gets very attractive for politicians, I don't care what party you are, <laughs> to want to use that fund for other purposes. And so that, in the governor's budget, there is language that does use that money for other purposes. So we're working hard to get that changed to restore the integrity of the fund, why it was created to begin with. So, so yes, it's very exciting. And that will help keep our, our members solvent, but also keep the integrity of, of the Medicaid expansion plan together as well. So it sounds like, and I imagine this is a typical year, there's both some offense and some defense being played. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you both are down there doing that important work. This has really been a fascinating discussion, and, and we're all friends here, but I, I do want to put you on the spot just a little bit because you have both been on both sides of the legislative process as elected officials representing a district and voters and constituents with a range of concerns and issues, and now as professional advocates. So I wonder, as you think about the demands of both jobs – as a, an elected legislator and as an advocate, which is more challenging and why? Mary Margaret, let's start with you. Oh, being a legislator is much more challenging. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I, I think maybe the biggest difference is that as a legislator, you have to be knowledgeable about many, many, many different topics. So, But when you're an advocate for a particular organization or a cause, then you need to be steeped in the knowledge of that so you have more detailed knowledge, but at least it's in one field. The other thing about being a legislator is just that there are so many demands on your time from other people. Constituents come to your office. Everybody expects to get to see you. you your life is lived in five-minute increments. You turn from one topic to another as you move from the session to a committee. So it's a very, very challenging environment for a legislator. And Dave, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. It, it certainly is a legislator. In addition to the difficulty of mastering, uh, being a master of a lot of policy issues, that moves very fast. You know, one thing people, unless you've been here, understand how quickly the, the General Assembly process moves. Uh, it's not like Congress at all. It, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, it has 60-day sessions. Bills are debated and looked at. Maybe a 20-minute discussion in a committee hearing is a thorough discussion. <laughs> so you've got to make quick decisions and move on. But also, I think it's harder. It's much more expensive to be in office today 
Uh, it takes more time out of your life, so it's harder, you know, as a citizen legislature, if you if you work or if you're self-employed or you work for someone, it's a harder life and more demanding. And uh, and I think today, because of social media, if you don't do something right, some you know, one one person who might be aggrieved could blast out, you know, some terrible thing about you just because they didn't get their. 15 seconds of attention that they thought they deserved. So it's it's a harder life today. And I think and the public is much more unwilling to be nurturing towards elected officials. You know what I mean? In the sense of they expect everything now. You work for me. And that mindset, you know, while that is true, that mindset makes it harder to serve. And I think that's something for not only for the General Assembly, but for the nation is something we really need to work out. You want to attract good people to office. It makes it harder when the dynamics are like that. Well, that's great perspective from both of you, particularly about the demands uh, of time and the commitment, because everybody, uh, both as Dave and Mary Margaret said, sort of pulling you in a bunch of different directions as a legislator, having high expectations that their needs will be met immediately, that there will be a ready response and a ready fix when the process is deliberately uh, designed to move more slowly and incrementally. And then, Dave, as you pointed out, if you also have, because this is a part-time citizen legislature, if you also have a full-time job, there are demands that cut into your family life and your work life. Uh, So all of those burdens are significant, and it's important to remind people of that. That is going to bring us to our final question of this podcast, and it's one that we ask all of our guests on the Patients Come First podcast. It's one inspired by a popular BBC program, and the question is this. Dave and Mary Margaret, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what one book, one movie, and one album would be in your survival kit? Dave, you have the first shot here. Uh, I'll take anything by Tom Clancy. <laughs> Red, Octo- Red October stands out. <laughs> okay. That's a good one. I I think I would take Little Women. So those, those are the books, and then album and movie for you both. Oh, and I'm a classic country fan. Uh, I, I, I'll take the Joshua Tree. Okay, you too. By you too. Okay. And then movie, one movie apiece. <laughs> Although Hunt for, Hunt for Red October is a movie, as is Little Women, so I guess you can. Yeah, well, that's count right. That. That's one I saw recently, so maybe yeah. that can count for both. Okay. Well, with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of Capital Report, a limited edition spinoff series of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. And again, thanks to our guests, Dave Nutter and Mary Margaret Whipple of the VHHA Advocacy Team for joining us today. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.